Good morning. Have a seat. How we doing? We got some people in cars out there? Give me a honk. All right, I hear a few honks. So, I think what's going to happen is there's going to be a whole lot more of us joining people out there because I'm afraid they've been getting a little bit lonely. So we have one of these fun weeks coming up for probably a couple weeks where we invite you to come to church in your bathrobe with curlers and bring your furry friends along with you. There's not very many times that we can uh, say, hey, come on, do that. You know, I mean, you probably even smoke a cigarette if you wanted to and maybe that's not necessary just don't 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 let Nancy Kay see you anyway all right we are glad that you're here with us if you're visiting you are most welcome we are continuing our series in Acts we kind of left Paul hanging last week where he was up in front of a king and a governor and all of these important officials probably Roman tribunals and others who were there in Caesarea as he's on trial. His life is in the balance. And so today we're going to jump into um, Paul's defense that he makes. And I think there's some great stuff to look at. But just to backtrack a little bit where we were last week, um, Paul's defense, as it turns out, we'll see today, it wasn't much of a defense of himself as much as it was a defense of God's accomplishments for the blessing of all creation through Jesus Christ. So I, we looked at Paul's faith. Paul, he approaches life with a certain kind of attitude, and it's childlike trust in the Lord is what I came up with, where the way that Paul is living It's like a kid jumping out to be caught by a father, for example, that there's going to be someone to pluck him out of the air. And so he's very bold in the way that he's able to live. There's a childlike quality to deep faith in Jesus Christ. So we've clearly seen in these closing chapters of Acts, but all throughout this narrative of Paul's life, that he's moved away from self-preservation to be his primary concern. Almost all of us live from a place of, I've got to look out for number one. I'm sorry, but I've got to take care of myself. And if I don't take care of myself, who is going to take care of me then? That who is going to take care of me place, that's a scary place for us to be. It's not a comfortable place for us to be. That's why so many of us, even who wear the name Christian, we live from this place of self-preservation rather than from our primary orientation being about what is going to make Jesus Christ look good? What is going to make God attractive? So I shared one of my favorite stories from author Henry Nouwen about trapeze artists. And... uh, This is where Nouwen discovers the secret of trapeze artists. It's the person flying through the air. They just go outstretched arms. They never try to catch the catcher. They just have to wait, arms outstretched, to be plucked out of the air. And uh, it's the worst thing that a flyer can do to try to catch the catcher. You can break wrists. You're a lot more likely to fall. They just have to wait for the catcher to pluck them out of the air. And he says this, a flyer must fly and a catcher must catch. 
and the flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there for him. See, Paul had learned faithfulness from the life that Jesus Christ modeled. And if you boil down the message of Jesus Christ to like a single sentence, if me as a preacher, I've studied all these things, all these words of Jesus, if I were to dispense that down to a simple statement or a simple phrase, it would be something like this. This is what the life of Jesus says. You can trust God the Father. You can trust God. Trust the power of God. Trust the goodness of God. Trust that God is for you. Trust that God is love. And when Jesus gives up his life on the cross, he never, he never stops trusting in God. He never stops trusting in the power, the love, and the goodness of God. And so his final, some of his final words, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Those are trapeze, trapeze artist kind of words. That is, he is with his life. He is flying out there. And if God does not catch him, there is no hope. That's the kind of faith that we're invited to. And uh, it's a hard thing for us to contemplate. It's hard for us to move past a narrative of self-preservation to a narrative of God glorification, making Jesus look good. But there is a process where this happens, and it's a process that takes shape over the course of many years. And we have a fancy theolo theological word for that. We just say sanctification. That's God's work to get us where we need to be to clean us up, to make us holy. So that is a process that takes place over time. It takes time to build a relationship, does it not? I learn to trust over time. We learn to trust God over time and over experiences. And you know what? Many of us, we probably don't have the faith we need to make the long jumps. We're all going to be required to make long jumps in this life, at, at least when we are we let go of it. We hang on tooth and nail, but none of us is living forever. So these long jumps, they seem impossible for us. A Paul-like ministry and life, it seems impossible to us. But Paul didn't start with long jumps. Paul started with small, humble acts of obedience. He got a special two-by-four upside the head from Jesus himself to wake him up and help him get on track. But when we learn faithfulness in small things with the small jumps, it grows our ability to trust and make the longer jumps when it's really important, when it comes down to it. So the question we need to ask is, you know, what is not, not maybe not, what is the next huge thing you need to do for Jesus? What is the, le the next right thing in your life that you've been putting off? What's the next small thing that you need to be doing to just step in the direction of, okay, I'm going to trust you, God, and you're going to have to help me with this. What is that next step for you? I'm not saying it has to be grand and huge, but don't despise the humility of small steps with trust in the Lord. Find those small steps. Make those small steps. Those build things in us, this process of sanctification, to make us strong. So then when it really comes to it and it really counts, 
We have built the kind of Christ-like character where it's not even a question anymore. We have moved from self-preservation to God-glorification where my sole concern is, what am I going to make? How am I going to make you look good, Lord Jesus? How am I making you look attractive, Jesus? So now back to our text in Acts 26. We're going to look at Paul's defense this morning. Uh, The fulfillment of Jesus' prophecies that his disciples would testify about him before kings and governors. But let's pay attention to the content of this testimony. I'm going to start in Acts 26, verse 4 and 5. The Jews all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Let me just say that phrase, they have known me for a long time. I think some of the violence against Paul uh, is his friends that he had, his the people he was educated with, the people he hung out with, they felt that he had betrayed them. These were the people Paul had spent his lifetime with, that they had known me for a long time, and that he was trained as a Pharisee. They're they're reacting against Paul because Paul was one of their own. And now one of their own is launching this challenge and trying to say this word about Jesus when they had been living their lives in rebellion against Jesus. So let's go on. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise of our trail, the the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? So first of all, in in Paul's defense, you notice how many times they use the word hope, just in this couple verses, three times. Hope is a key idea behind the defense that Paul is giving. And as we'll see, his whole argument is focused on Christ with the resurrection at its very center. That is our hope that Jesus was raised from the dead. That is our hope as disciples of Jesus, that this life is not all there is. Our hope is also that there is something more coming. Our hope is that justice will be done. Our hope is that we will meet the Lord and we will find him and that he will say to us, well done, good and faithful sermon. So this whole argument that he's making centers off hope. I, too, was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I went to foreign cities to persecute them. 
On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, and about noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So this is an interesting way that this, this version is phrased. It's like these, we've heard this story, this is the third time, and every time a few more details are given. Hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad is like a stick, kind of wavy stick at the end, used as a prod uh, uh, and a stick to help direct animals. So essentially, Jesus is asking Saul, why are you kicking against God's discipline and direction? Why are you kicking against God's purposes? Why are you bucking against me, Saul? What I'm trying to do and what I'm trying to accomplish. That is what that phrase means. So then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. And just in that short couple verses, there, that short verse there, there should be some comfort there for us, I think, that when a disciple of Jesus is harmed, Jesus takes it personally. When people harm Jesus' people, who are his own, who claim him, Jesus takes that personally. Jesus is a part of every hardship that we face or every hardship we experience. And all those who were persecuted by Saul, Jesus owns personally all those people as a part of him. A part of him, in him, under him. So Jesus says this, Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you what you have seen of me and what I will show you. So Paul is not just responsible to testify about this experience, but the ongoing works that are going to be revealed to him. Uh, that process of sanctification in his life, how God has worked to, to change his heart and to give him a new mission and a new direction. Uh, the things that God will continue to reveal, that Jesus continues to reveal to Paul. Our testimonies are progressive because we build on this history. We build a living relationship that over time, who God is, is revealed to us more and more. Our understanding grows and changes over time. Things grow in significance. Things and experiences, they become deeper and more important to us. So not only do we testify about the reality of where we are now, we continue to build those testimonies. He says, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles, and I am sending you to them to open their eyes. Sorry, the screen is still bleaking out. Open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So this sanctification that Jesus talks about, that comes by faith, 
Uh, it's not through ethni ethnicity anymore. It's not through culture. Uh, the one decision that matters then in human existence is the question, what will you do with Jesus, my friend? Neutral you cannot be. There's some truth in those words. That is the one question that really matters. Uh, so then King Agrippa I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, and then, and then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Prove their repentance by their deeds. So Paul is not making a faith versus works argument, but simply stating the reality of fruit that's going to be produced out of a heart that loves the Lord. If you have the heart that loves Jesus, there's going to be fruit. That's all Paul is saying here. If true repentance is there, the deeds are going to be there as well. But if we turn to God with our words and not with our hearts, likewise, it will show in our deeds or our lack of deeds. If it's just words and our heart is not there, that produces a different kind of fruit than a heart of love. That's what Paul is saying. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. Kill me, But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here to testify to small and great alike. Paul recognizes the Holy Spirit has given him this opportunity, this moment of testimony to high people and low people, that God has brought Paul to this very place in this very situation. The Holy Spirit has given Paul a pulpit in front of governors, in front of kings. He's on his way to Rome to testify to Caesar himself, the leader of the world. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. So this argument is interesting to me because it's kind of, uh, it's like he's saying too much education is such a bad thing. Where in our day, uh, Western, the hubris of Western education, at least our institutions of education, it paints our faith as fairy tales. We believe in science, meaning we are the ones who have knowledge. You have something less than science. We have something real and dependable and measurable. What you have is fluff. So for my part, I love science. I love education. That's why I've spent so much money on school over the years. Science, at its core, it's an attempt to observe, an attempt to measure, to understand our reality, the reality that God has created. Science is beautiful because it seeks to understand a universe that is filled with laws and order. But people use the label science in political ways as well. They use the label science in religious ways as well. I believe in science and therefore I do not believe in God. 
That's a religious kind of statement. That's a religious kind of language being used. Um, the religion of science, as people define it colloquially, uh, it's like, I don't want anything to do with these Christians or Christianity, or it's a way to dismiss without having to deal with the content or uh, deal with what is being proclaimed here among uh, the faithful. It's a kind of humanism that centers around self-preservation, centers around self-fulfillment. Uh, science doesn't answer, I think, the big existential questions of life. Uh, and when, when people look to scientists and the people who have science to, yeah, like, I'm not going to be political or anything, but there's, you hear about this on my news feed. It comes up again and again and again. Dr. Fauci says this about, Dr. Fauci says he's been identified as the voice of science. And uh, it's like whatever he says about anything, it almost has religious kind of overtones, political overtones, where there's, you get what I'm saying? Is, that, is this tracking at all? We can use the label of science in political ways. But science, in the end, it doesn't answer the big existential questions of life. Where do I come from? Why am I here? Why do you exist? Why do you exist? What is your life's purpose? What is a good life? What is important? What is the value of love? See, those things aren't measurable or quite. So let's take this idea of love. Um, this is a complete aside. Sorry about that. I do that kind of stuff sometimes. You know me. When I can use 10 words, why not use 100? You know, that's your preacher. So love. There is a physiological, biological reaction that maybe takes place. So, you know, there's certain things with Alicia, maybe my pupils dilate, my heart beats a little bit quicker, and there's, there's, you know, this feeling that uh, takes away stress, whatever that is. That's not what love is at the end of the day. I think the words of science can measure and express certain things, but the words of a poem or of a song are going to express a lot more clearly a reality that I feel that I believe is true and that I hold as important. Does that make sense? But at the end of the day, uh, you know, it, 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 Fest, uh, Festus saying, you know, you've got too much learning. That's why you're insane. Or in our world today, you don't have enough of the right kind of learning. That's why you Christians are insane. You know, at the end of the day, I think as Christians, we just got to own our oddness. It's okay. We don't have to be afraid to own the weirdness of who we are and what we believe. Uh, it's okay that we own things like resurrection from the dead. I, I've seen some crazy things. I've seen some things I would call clear miracles. I have never seen a resurrection from the dead. And yet it's something I believe on it based on the testimony of others, testimonies that are thousands of years old. I cannot prove scientifically 
that this has happened. But uh, uh, thinking about the oddness of who we are as Christians, the things that we claim, uh, A.W. Tozer, who was a theologian, um, wrote these words, uh, I don't know, last century, 1940s or something, I don't remember, actually. A real Christian is an odd number anyway. He feels supreme love for one whom he has never seen, talks familiarly every day to someone he cannot see, expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another, empties himself in order to be full, admits he is wrong so he can be declared right, goes down in order to get up, is strongest when he is weakest, richest when he is poorest, and happiest when he feels worst. He dies so he can live, forsakes in order to have, gives away so he can keep. We're strange birds. We can own that. That's okay. That is a voice that is different from this world. So Paul defends his sanity then before his audience. So he is challenged by the governor, but instead of backing down, Paul goes on an evangelistic attack, and he digs in even more deeply, and his statements get even more bold at this point. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know you do. See how presumptuous Paul is being? How aggressive he is being? Keep in mind, Paul is playing a whole other game, remember? He is in this game to make Jesus Christ look good. So then Agrippa pushes back. First the governor reacts, and now the king is pushing back against Paul. Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul doesn't cower again. Paul doesn't doubt again. Paul goes at it again. Short time or long, I pray that not only you, but all those who are here listening to me today will become as I am, except for these chains. It's fearless. Courageous. Paul is playing a whole other game. So, first Festus pushes back, then Agrippa pushes back. Long time or short, I don't care but I want you to share in the goodness of what we have in Jesus Christ. That's what I care about. That's what I care about. So Paul is supposed to be the one on trial. And the irony is, those who supposedly have the power to decide this, suddenly they find that they are the ones on trial. What will you do with Jesus? The one who is being questioned now puts before these others in the power of the Holy Spirit, what are you going to do with Jesus? And we know that these arguments make an impact. 
We know that they cry out and they, they, they don't have the... And so at this point, we know they have an impact because they get up and they walk out of the room. The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with him. They left the room and while talking to one another, they said, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So once again, Paul, this is the third time he's been proclaimed by those who are supposed to be in leadership and charge of these things, that he's been proclaimed to be innocent. But he is still going to Rome, and I'm sure they had their ideas and reasons for sending Paul to appear before Caesar. But in the end, remember, Jesus told Paul, you're going to testify about me in Rome. So what Jesus has told Paul is going to happen that's what is going to happen now. It's been two years of waiting, two years of hiding Paul away in the dark places so no one has to see him or hear from him. And now he's testifying with great power and boldness that puts a kind of testimony that puts the judges under judgment. What are you going to do with Jesus? That is powerful. So this is our text for this morning. And now I want to transition to just look at some of the structure of the argument that Paul makes. Because Paul's argument is really well organized. And uh, this might be tedious to some of us. I apologize. Again, I'm a preacher. I bring tedious things before you all the time. Specifically, uh, the organization of Paul's defense we're going to look at that because I think in paying attention to the structure, it reveals some of the treasure of what Paul is sharing with us. There's treasure in these verses that we're meant to pay attention to. So this whole argument that Paul makes is one big chiasm. So maybe you can see it here. So the A statement in yellow, B kind of statements in green, and the C sort of statements in purple. So the structure of this chiasm is argue, the argument logic follows A, B, C, C, B, A, like a big sandwich that points to something in the middle. What are between these two C pieces then? So the yellow, uh, it's Paul in his faithfulness to the tradition. Paul's faithfulness to her tradition my hope is in what God has promised. He's faithful to the tradition. At the bottom, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. Faithfulness to the tradition. So the green is Paul the pure persecutor who becomes Paul the persecuted. The persecutor to the, the persecuted. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus, and that's just what I did. And then it, he is the persecuted now. This is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. And then the middle sandwich in purple, Paul is commissioned. These are the, the passages that Paul is called to be a witness. First, by the chief priests, they give him a commission. And then on the road to Damascus, Jesus Christ hijacks that commission with a higher calling. And the second part of that then is to appoint you as a servant and as a witness, I am sending you to them. And then on the next half of that, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. 
I was given a commission. I was faithful to the commission. So there's one verse that sits in the middle of all of this. So chiastic structure, this pattern, it shows us oftentimes that in the middle of these chiasms, there's something that we're meant to find and pay attention to. So Wednesday evenings, we've been listening to this Bema podcast. And the book of Genesis we've been going through, it's filled with these kind of patterns and structure, these chiasms. Uh, so this treasure that is in the middle of all of this, it's chapter 26, verse 18. And it says these words. These are words of Jesus that happen to be right in the middle of all of this. To open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and have a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So what is described in this verse, 18? It's a whole series of different kinds of movements. There's, there's all kinds of action words in this. So I kind of looked at these. I don't have a commentary to prove this. This is Calvin's speculation, but I think there's something to this. I think this is legitimate. I prayed about it with the Lord. Here's the movements that I see from closed eyes to open eyes. From darkness, dark places, to light, light-filled places. There's a movement there. There's a movement from the power of Satan to the power of God. There's movement from unforgiveness, which is assumed, to forgiveness of sins. And there's a movement from not having a place to having a place among those who are sanctified. All of these kind of movements. And you know what is the one thing necessary to have all of these kinds of movements? All of these movements are available to us based on one thing. Jesus gives us just three words. Faith in me. That's what it boils down. That's why these judges are being judged and they are on trial. What are you going to do about this question of Jesus Christ? Paul is saying everything we need, everything to go from blindness to seeing, to go from darkness to light, to go from the power of Satan to the power of God, to go from unforgiveness to forgiveness, to go from not having a place to having a place to stand, it all centers on faith in Jesus Christ. That's the jump that we're all being invited to make. There is so much suffering in our world today because we put constantly we constantly put our faith in the wrong things. You know what I'm talking about. When you put your faith in the wrong thing and it comes back to bite you, we all have those experiences and we all feel that. We all feel the pain of that. 
whatever that is that you're putting your faith in. Your own pleasure, your own safety. I don't know. See, without Jesus, without faith in Jesus, our eyes are closed. We're left in darkness. We're under the power of Satan. We're unforgiven. We don't have a place to stand. You can come, Ron. And I think that's the invitation of our text this morning. You know, a lot of us have been stuck in this place for a long time. This place of having put our faith in wrong things. Myself included, I find myself there. And I take this stuff pretty serious. But that's where Jesus comes to us and where Jesus finds us, not just once, but again and again and again. That is why our Savior is so amazing and so wonderful. He saves me from me again and again and again. And this is where we find Jesus. The web address, you all know it, www.endofmyrope.com. That is where Jesus comes to us again and again and again and asks us to trust. Stop putting faith in this. Put your faith in me. Put your trust in me. Give me your love and devotion. And it's in that place of faith in Jesus that we are given everything we need to make this life work. That is your invitation. If you need prayers uh, for this church, you want to share with us, if you want to put the Lord on in baptism, however we can help you, we give you a chance to come and share those things with me up here as uh, we stand and sing together. Yeah.